Scott Nelson is a Grammy-nominated music producer who has over 30 years' experience in the music business. He is a former vice president of A&R for Warner Brothers. He is the executive director of Reboot. He has an independent label called Birdman Records. He has a podcast and a newsletter called The Signal. And he is about to release a very exciting book and box set. David Nelson is a native of San Francisco and loves music like no one else I have ever met. He can spend hours and hours listening to music, going through his albums, telling you about each nuance of each album, of the artwork, of who's on the album, of each record. He's amazing. Having David tell us about the history of Hate and Divisadero and the evolution of music in the San Francisco Bay Area was quite a treat. Here is our interview from May 2021 with the fantastic, amazing, kind, warm, and lovely David Katznelson. I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. So there I was. I just picked up my friend Aileen. We were going to have this perfect day in the city. So I take her to Hate Street and I take her to Amoeba Records, and we walk in, and lo and behold, the band that we were just listening to in my car was about to play. What? (laughs) Crazy. So my car is also named Neil after Neil Young, which shows you what a music dork I am. And so we had this amazing time listening to Waves was this band. They were like this garage surf rock band in the city at the time. And then we went and grabbed a burrito. We walked through Golden Gate Park. There was a drum circle playing. It was a beautiful day. And then we went, grabbed a bottle of wine, and watched the sunset on Baker Beach. So this was the exact day that David Katznelson described as his perfect day, (laughs) listening to music in the city as well. So... I just adore him. I think that we're kindred spirits, and I believe that this episode was the first one that really resonated hard with me. I'm like, ah, me and David, we're alike. We love music. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, so tell us about the culture of the Hate Street neighborhood, Jay. Yeah, so my take on hate, Deviz, we call it Deviz, and the music environment in these neighborhoods is more from the side of DJs and hip hop. The hate is really the pulse of the city where the youth go, dig the crates at Amoeba Records and find rare records to play at the nightclub. And up and coming DJs would play at clothing stores like FTC or True or at Madrone on Divisdero and on any given Friday night or even weeknight, there's always a venue that has some kind of music playing from jazz to hip hop to old school to a entire set 
dedicated to Prince and Michael Jackson. It is the place to go to check out music when you love small venues and maybe not this massive club experience. That sounds so cool. So I did not have my 20s and 30s in San Francisco. So for me, Hate and Divisadero was something that I remember from childhood. And it was kind of where soul music, rock and roll, blues and jazz all melded together. But Hate and Divisadero was not a corner that we were allowed to go to at all by ourselves because it wasn't the safest corner in the world, but it always seemed to be pulsating with music. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about your history and then dive into the music. Okay. Okay. So you're born and raised in San Francisco. Yes. How many generations? We're pretty new here. My mom and dad both moved here. And then, so I guess I'm first generation San Francisco. Please don't tell anybody. <laughs> for, this, for, this, for this podcast, I'm sixth generation San Francisco. Okay. Long time. And you grew up in what neighborhood? I grew up in Seacliff. My father and mother moved there in 1963. And I was born in 1969. Okay. Yeah, the Richmond. Okay. And tell me about the... You love the Richmond. Tell me about, about the Richmond. Oh, I love the Richmond. I love the Richmond as it extends into the ocean. You know, they say about the Richmond, they say that it disintegrates into the sea the farther and farther out you go. Um, a wonderful place to grow up. Back in the day before the Legion of Honor had the fences around itself, we used to go up at night and hang with the thinker, go ice blocking on the golf course. Um, I'm not supposed to say that. Well, you didn't hear that. And China Beach. I love China Beach. And when I was really young, we still had Playland at the beach. And my mom and dad would bring me down to, to have the fun down there. And the Cliff House still had the old nickel machines and, and all in the, in the bottom. And it was amazing. It was an amazing place. It was a great place to grow up. And also, you're near Golden Gate Park. And I grew up near the Buffalo. Excuse me, the Bison. I grew up near the Bison and getting to know them really well and frolicking in, in, in all the, those fields. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your music career and San Francisco and the music thing here, because nobody knows about that. Oh, okay. Well, San Francisco played such a pivotal role in my development. I was not a fan of my community that I had it in high school. I was at Lowell. And I actually really enjoyed... Oh, I went to Lowell, too. Oh, go, well, for me, it was Go Indians. Now, that's not being said. Now, it's Go Cardinals. Hopefully, I say this loud and clear, Lowell will be uh, preserved, unlike what some of the politicians in town want to do with it right now, Yeah, which is going to be just a, a total tragedy if it goes through. So, I really enjoyed the educational component of Lowell, but I wasn't really feeling the community. And I was always somebody who liked music. I was always somebody who liked music, but I was always somebody who liked music that wasn't necessarily the music that was going on at the time. Most of the time, I was born just a little bit too late to enjoy punk rock and all the alternative rock that was going on at the time. So, when I was 15 years old, I started ushering for Bill Graham Presents, and I started working at KUSF. And I started working when I was 16 years old at a punk rock label called CD Presents, which was in the southern part of San Francisco on Napoleon. And I found my people there. Most of them were older. Most of them were either in bands or people who would go see bands. I luckily had my brother's ID, so it allowed me to go to amazing clubs 
like the I-Beam on Monday nights, New Music Monday nights, or the Viz Club for Wacky Wednesdays on Wednesday nights, or go to the farm on the weekends, which was all ages anyway, but I did not see a lot of people from high school there. I think that in the modern day that we live in, it's much more accepted for people of that age to want to go see music and go out and stuff like that. When I was growing up, it wasn't that case. There were a couple of people who were my age who were connected to KUSF and connected to a lot of the music stuff, including Angela Veranose and Alexandra Pelosi, both of whom come from San Francisco royalty, uh, Angela's grandfather being the mayor of San Francisco at one point in time, and obviously Alexandra's mother, now Speaker of the House. They were the ones who were my age who were with me on this trip of going to see music and getting into it. And for me, I was just doing anything I could to get free records and free concert tickets and, and even getting a little money on the side. And so those gigs that I had were just, were just amazing. And I mean, KUSF was an incredible, incredible place to be in the mid-80s. The people who were involved were just true music fans. Uh, I learned so much. I learned, you know, God, what an education I got just by doing that. And I was going every day after high school. I was uh, taking the 29 and then parlaying that to another bus and getting to Haight Street and walking up to KUSF. It's so cool. Yeah. So out of all the people I know, you are truly a music lover and truly a musicologist. So describe your love for music, where it comes from, and what kind of music. I'm not really sure where it comes from. I mean, when I was growing up, my brothers had what I considered at the time to be a really big record collection, and they were much older than me, seven years older and 10 years old than I was. So a lot of my early music listening was with their record collection. I don't understand why I love it as much as I do. It's something, you know, I've been collecting records since I was three. I'm a pathetic record collector, and ultimately, I'm a pretty boring person because of it. But over the course of the years records and the back of the records and the liner notes and the name drops of other bands, you get deep into it. And one thing I've learned about myself is when I get into something, I take a really deep dive into it. May it be from San Francisco Appreciation Society and getting really into the obscure parts of San Francisco that you and I participated in, or may it be particular types of music that we would get into. And I kind of fell into careers. And so I was doing all this stuff, and then I went to college and you know, started working at Calix, Berkeley at college, a great radio station, still around, still doing amazing things. And then all of a sudden, I got my internship at Warner Brothers, and it all kind of just one thing happened after the other. Warner Brothers was having a hiring freeze when I was an intern, and my boss, Roberta Peterson, the great Roberta Peterson, who signed Devo and Dire Straits and Katie Lang and Jane's Addiction and on and on and on and on, I introduced her to a band called The Flaming Lips, and uh, she called me a month out of my graduation from Berkeley and said two things. One is we're going to sign The Flaming Lips, and two, I got Lenny Warnocker, the president of Warner Brothers, to approve you coming on as an A&R person to be their A&R person and to work at Warner Brothers. And so this is during a time of Reagan. This is during a time when the New York Times released that historic article saying that my generation, Generation X, was not going to have the opportunities that other generations had as far as in the workplace. So this idea that I was given this opportunity was so absolutely fantastic. And the only other thing I will say is I was an intern at Warner Brothers during most of my years at Berkeley. I'd be down in LA for the three months of the summer, and then I would be up in Berkeley doing some stuff there. And the president, Lenny Warnerger, gave me a letter. And the letter says, we know David is underage. 
we're asking him to be let into your club because he's doing work for us. And it worked at every club in Los Angeles. So I had a pretty amazing way of celebrating the music and the music that I loved. And every time I worked on a band, every time I was signing something, it allowed me the space to learn more about the genre of that music. And I I had a Warner Brothers credit card that allowed me to buy as much music as I wanted to. And I was, I was buying $1,000 worth of records a month for years, eight, nine years. So it was great. That's incredible. It's pretty good. That's incredible. I'm pretty blown away at it when I think, you know, those, those jobs don't exist anymore. The music industry's changed. I mean, that's part of the reason I came back here. But back in those days, from my 20s, Holy crap, it was amazing. What a perfect job. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who don't know, can you describe the music scene in San Francisco and how it began and then how it evolved? Well, the music scene in San Francisco is amazing because it's always been this kind of insular place. Like when I was growing up, one of the things people said against it was the bands didn't have an ambition to go farther out. They were very happy with the scene that they were playing to. Obviously, there were some bands there that wanted to become more famous, and they did. But what's amazing about San Francisco, the history of San Francisco music, and I'm not really quite sure about it now. I'm a father of two kids, and I'm focused on that, and I'm kind of grown up, and I'm not as plugged in. But there's a reason why with the jump blues scene and the jazz scene, there was an epicenter here in San Francisco. And there's a reason why when it came to flower power and hippie love and things like that, the epicenter was here. San Francisco has always been a breeding ground and accepting of alternative ways of thinking, of you know, celebrating freaks. And I say that in the best of all possible ways. And because of that, it allowed scenes that wouldn't exist anywhere else to exist. You know, So when I was growing up, it was post-punk rock, and it was really a, uh, a mishmash of a lot of different kinds of stuff. You could go see Camper Van Beethoven one night, and then you would go see some heavy metal band the next night, or you would see an alternative rock band another night, or you'd see some, some people who had been from the scenes in the past still playing on another night. It wasn't a scene that you could put your finger on. In L.A. at the same time, they had the Paisley Underground, which was like this resurgence of psychedelic music done by new people. You didn't really have this all-inclusive theme, this all-inclusive genre. But for me, that was great because I didn't care. And you'd find all these amazing bands and you would get really into them. And they were very approachable. And I found myself hanging out with these bands that were in their 20s and 30s and just learning a lot. I mean, there was this one night when this guy, Hector Penalosa, who was in a band called Flying Color, who used to be in a band called The Zeros, one of the very, very first punk bands, he turned me on to the New York Dolls, the Stooges, and the MC5 all in one evening, which ended up becoming this like foundation for me as far as the proto-punk world and what became of that and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. Amazing. I've also always loved that we've had music in the park. Day on the Green. I mean, all those big concerts yeah. are here. And then we have so many famous musicians living right here in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. That's always been that way, and I hope that continues. I think that we took a hit with the rise of the dot-coms. We've had a lot of great musicians leave here. I'm hoping that during this whole COVID crisis that things might have righted themselves a little bit. I cannot wait to get to a place where I am in the park listening to music with everybody around me. I've been on the board of Stern Grove Festival for 20 years, and we got approval two weeks ago to host the concert live this year for people to come to. And I think Stern Grove Festival will be one of the first things that people can come to. And it's free. 
And I can't tell you all the who's playing there, but I can tell you right now, it's one of the better lineups that we've ever had. And it's just so exciting. I, we have we have a gift of having so many spaces because we haven't even talked about the McLaren Park and that stage there and the stuff that you can do at the beach. And then there's we players who once the world opens up again, takes the city and uses it to do walkthroughs of the greatest Shakespeare works of our time and stuff. We have a beautiful city that we're able to utilize and I miss it. I miss being able to do that. Yeah, definitely. We have a wonderful city and we have a lot of outdoor space. A lot of outdoor space. You know, because we go to... Uh, it's in the park every single summer. Like Harley Strictly Bluegrass. Uh, no. The, yeah, Harley Strictly Bluegrass, but then the, I go to the other one. Um, uh, Treasure Island. There's Outside Land. Outside Land. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. And Treasure Island and Outside Lands, yeah. There's so many. There's so many. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love, I love Harley Strictly because it's free and it's, it's, it's a hang. And, and for it being a free show, the quality of musicians that are on there it's amazing and and i think that i would say that in the americana landscape they see san francisco as a very special place because of it what's interesting about san francisco is though even though it's ever changed if you know where to look you can see the san francisco musical history just baked in you can go to north beach and you can see the saloon which post-covid i'm sure will still have blues bands playing outside of there that thing has been around i think it's one of the oldest bars in town i think it's in theory where a buck got traded from one person to another and call the wild and jack lennon's call the wild it's been around for that long and the rich musical history that's come out of that place alone the viz club which was a blues and jazz club. I mean, marijuana plants were growing in the backyard there because whenever they were rolling the joints, they were throwing the seeds out there. I mean, so it was an incredible thing. It became the Kennel Club, which became the Independent Justice League, which is now the Independent. I mean, that that's still a thriving spot. And you can see these spots that are still with us. I mean, we've definitely lost something over the last couple of years or the last five years, but there's still a lot of amazing historical venues in san francisco that we can celebrate yeah and then then san francisco has also been a leader in the nation when it comes to radio stations yeah we have some of the best radio stations on the earth we have some of the best radio stations on the earth and i want to just say hats off to michael krasny for retiring just recently and what an amazing morning show he had for so so long we miss him kusf was taken off the air but now that's a community radio station back on the air and they're broadcasting, I think, very near to where we are right now. My favorite radio station in San Francisco is definitely KPU, Black-owned and Black-operated for how long? The content's incredible. And for some bizarre reason, you can get KPU far outside the city. So you can drive around listening wow. to your funk and your reggae and your soul and all that stuff. You know, Jimmy Spiderweb in the morning spinning his 50s and 60s doo-wop and, and, and R&B. I love KPU. I just absolutely love it. And I think it's one of the best radio stations in the country. I wish they'd offer me a DJ slot at Kpu. <laughs> I would do it in a heartbeat. What's the station? Kpu, KPOO, eighty-nine point five FM. Tune to your Kpu now. And you know it's it, the, the headquarters on Divisadero. I mean, if you're driving down Divisadero and you're looking west, you'll see the uh, you'll see the Kpu sign. Another amazing thing in San Francisco that I think needs to be talked about is the Church of John Coltrane. The Church of John Coltrane has been around for over fifty years. The bishop just had major surgery. I think he's doing okay. But it, when, when something like that happens, it makes you understand the importance 
of the legacy of the, of, of the thing. And the Church of John Coltrane, based on the, the life of John Coltrane every week, or at least during, you know, before COVID and probably now, has these Sunday services where they have a umpteenth piece jazz band with tons of saxophones and they do the music of John Coltrane and they sing to it and the whole thing. And it is uh, a treasure that's not like unlike anything else. They have been really screwed while the city has blossomed in its modern technology-fueled dynamic. They've been bumped around as far as where they are. They used to be on to Visadero. I bet you know the place if you ever passed by that Victoria that had hubcaps all over the place, you know, when we were growing up. That was the Church of John Coltrane. And they had to move to Fillmore. And then when the Fillmore thing didn't really happen, that re- the whole resurgence didn't really happen. I think they're near USF right now. But it's just an amazing place. Uh, you know what? I have never been there. Oh, my God. We're going. This there. sounds amazing. It's amazing. Where oh. do people find it? Uh, well, you can just Google the Church of John Coltrane. You'll find it. And they have a show every week on Kapu. On Kapu. Okay, where they play, okay. guess what? John Coltrane. And you know what? Who doesn't want to hear that? Yeah. So... The Church of John Coltrane is a, one of the biggest gifts that we have right now in San Francisco. That's so amazing. I have never... I've, <laughs> I have to see that. I have to say, I've never heard of it before. Yeah. So thank you for, for that. You know, what's really ironic is that for a city that is really gentrified over the years, the black culture that exists here is still so incredible and so powerful. We just need more of it. But it's just so incredible and so powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely... It's here. You just have to know where to look. We interviewed Reverend Brown at the beginning of our podcast, and he talked all about the history of the Fillmore. Yeah. Yeah. Being, uh, being Harlem of the West. Harlem of the West until it was brutally destroyed by, um, what's his name? He'll come to me. The developer who totally screwed up the Fillmore. It's a, it's a horrible story. Anyway, he'll come to me. Okay. My brain isn't what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was. No one's is. No. So tell me a little bit, of, when I go to your house, you always have wonderful music playing and you always have, and they're always records and your kids know the records and it just, so tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and also your love for the history of music and musicology. So I'm actually working on the biggest project that I've ever worked on right now. There was a label called Specialty Records and it started in 1946, it's 75 years old this year and it went on for about 12 or 15 years. And during its life, it, you know, Little Richard was on the label, and I'm arguing that this is the label to look at if you want to think about the birth of rock and roll. And I'm doing a 7LP, 200-page book box set with my wife, Barbara, looking at the early, early years, the years that people don't really usually pay attention to, with these incredible, great voices like Winona Carr and Jimmy Liggins and the Pilgrim Travelers. And it's called Set the World on Fire, the early days of specialty records and the birth of rock and roll. And I'm actually going to make a bold statement in the box. And we have a lot of people doing essays. And I'm going to kind of, you know, tie it all up by saying, I think that we think of the birth of rock and roll incorrectly. I think it happened before the common era is thought of. Right now, we think of the birth of rock and roll around when Ike Turner did at Rocket 88 or when Little Richard did Tutti Frutti or when Blue Sway Shoes was done by Carl Perkins up in Memphis. I'm going to say that all the people who came before who we currently say, oh, they're the precursor of rock and roll, they're actually the ones who created it. So when Big Mama Thornton did Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, that was rock and roll. When Jimmy Liggins did Cadillac Boogie, which Ike Turner took to make Rocket 88, Jimmy Liggins was rock and roll. And I think that it's time that 
the people who really put themselves out there doing the weirdest stuff. Winona Carr, sister Winona Carr, whose music in 1951 sounded like Aretha Franklin in 1962, that was rock and roll. And so that's kind of what the, the thesis is, and I'm working on that right now. I believe that music can tell the story of our lives, period. I think that if you look at the recordings that have been done in the past and you use the right questions to pry into them and unlock them, that you are going to find answers to history's questions much more than any kind of history book or you know, a journalist writing about it or a documentary. I think that if you look at the right kinds of music, it's done by artists who are seeing the world in a specific way, and it's a time capsule. And my wife and I led an eighth grade class for a couple of years where we looked at recordings that were done in the 1930s that had not been distributed widely from the Library of Congress to unpack the story of the Great Depression. And it's just, it's an incredible thing. And so I spent most of my early years working with new bands and growing them and putting them out in the world. And my later years have really been spent with a lot more of the kind of reissue preservation stuff, using the music to kind of tell these stories. You know what? I think you're absolutely right. Because when you think about the way that people had to communicate with each other, it was through music. music. People who were oppressed or people who were enslaved, they had no other way to communicate but through music. Yes, And so they were giving each other messages. Well, the, the quilts people know about it, but not the music. It's very, very true. And I've worked with Otha Turner, who does drum and fife music, which is the oldest living post-colonial type of music still alive. And the history is just played right in front of you. And the Library of Congress was smart enough to understand that in the 30s, if they didn't go in and record this stuff, it was going to stay in its local areas and die with the generations as they died off. And so we have all this stuff. We have thousands and thousands of hours that are preserved at the Library of Congress on this stuff. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. Jay, do you have any questions? I just love meeting new people and <laughs> learning new things. I love meeting you. And I, I can't believe we're actually sitting here unmasked, hanging out. It's the I know. Thing it's, it's, it's super great. Mission. Right across from Dolores Park. Yeah, right across from Dolores Park. Exactly. Another great place to see music. Another great place to see music in our wonderful city of San Francisco. And, of course, we are kitty corner away from the Golden Fire Hydrant that the San Francisco Appreciation Society did the incredible celebration at the 100th year anniversary of the fire being put out after the Great Earthquake. Exactly. 1906 earthquake. (coughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lots of history here. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to feeling good about being maskless, walking down Haight Street, taking that all in, jumping into Golden Gate Park, walking to Hippie Hill on a Saturday, hearing the drum circle, maskless, walking down, passing Legion of Honor, going to the Sculpture Garden, hanging out, having a coffee, and making it down to the beach for sunset. If, when that happens, I'll know that we are back. That we are back. <laughs> exactly. You what know? you're describing exactly. is perfect. Part of the reason why we started this podcast, we were looking f- at the mass exodus. Yes. You know, was, we, tech is still a big part of San Francisco. But with the mass exodus, there's now room for perhaps artists to come back and music to come back at a whole nother level. And I think even the mayor is working on getting more artists back. I don't mind saying this because I love the city. The city has also somewhat broken my heart over the past five or six years, ever since one of our mayors allowed the tech companies to come in without even getting taxed. And the radical change overnight that that had on our city 
I know so many musicians who have moved out of the city since then. And in fact, over COVID, you don't see people and you still talk to them on the phone. I didn't even realize that there were several musicians I was talking to on the phone that were no longer in San Francisco. I did, and then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, the city's opening up. Let's get a drink. And they're like, well, we moved to Eureka or we moved to Los Angeles. I mean, it's been happening quietly because you can't see anybody right now. But the truth of the matter is that what made San Francisco great when I was growing up is also some of the reasons why it wasn't great. San Francisco was down and out. San Francisco was cheap. In a way, it was dirty. It wasn't put together. It was chaotic. And what happened because of all that is the artists got to sit and marinate. You had bands that were living in beautiful Victorian houses. You had music and art being like dripping out of every facet of the sidewalk as you walked down the streets of Mission and North Beach and different places like that. And that's not here now. It's extinct currently. And we need to get that back. The idea that you run into a musician here and you're like, oh my God, what a crazy thing. That's a wrong way to think about it. You know, it needs to come, it needs to come back in a way and we got to figure it out. I mean, on my way home from school, I lived, I grew up in the Upper Haight, as you know, and on my way home from school, it, you would hear Crosby, Stills, Nash rehearsing in a garage. Yeah. Wow. Literally. And you would hear, we would stand by the garage and just listen. Because it was them. Jefferson Airplane was just down the street. I mean, music was, this city is music city. It really is. And people don't necessarily know that. The fact that they don't know it shows the change. When my brothers were 9, 10, 11, and they were hanging out at China Beach, Grace Slick owned that brown, built that brown house that's right next to Land's End. And she would open up all the windows and the airplane would practice there. And my other brothers would sit at China Beach and hear the airplane practicing. We have to figure out a way, the major, huge amount of collective of people, we have to figure out a way of bringing art back into San Francisco. The interesting thing is the tech industry came here because of what San Francisco had to offer as far as open thinking and artistic ways of doing things. But the effect of them coming here was the expulsion of that of which they came here for. It's a horrible irony, and we've got to figure out a way back into it. I, I completely and 100% agree. You know. Yeah, that mayor made a big mistake because he didn't make any requirements to be here. He didn't say, we'll take away your taxes, but you don't have to pay taxes, but you're going to have to develop some community responsibility and give back. He yeah. didn't do that. And so because of that, we wound up in a pickle. He passed away in office, so I don't want to say too much bad about him, but I will say he really screwed us. <laughs> <laughs> he really he really sold out San Francisco. So we gotta get it back. We have to get it back. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, was I not supposed to say that? No, no it's perfect. No, it's perfectly fine. Okay. Yeah. No. Let's talk about the Visadero for a second. I mean the truth of the matter is is that when I was growing up, it was down and out, you know? You had brother-in-law's barbecue, which was killer, and you had the Viz, but you had a lot of derelicts, and you had a lot of closed-down buildings, and yet there was a middle ground that wasn't met. So it's like it came up really quickly, and Nopa moved in and really kind of changed the whole vibe of the place. Yeah, I remember that. And their success led to a complete gentrification and kind of a cultural vacuum 
that, that was there beforehand. When I was growing up, I mean, there was musicians and artists just walking all up and down those streets. When I was growing up in Hate Street, what's interesting is that it was in the mid-80s, so all the hippies that were there in their 20s were burned out, but they were still there. So you got this feeling that was going on of walking down the street and kind of catching history. I was there when, I can't remember, was it a Walmart? They were going to build some sort of major store there, and it was firebombed by the residents because they didn't want a big to have store. a big store there. Yeah. you know. And there was this idea of keeping hate contained. My mom and dad worried about me walking down Hay Street because it was somewhat derelict. I loved walking down Hay Street because you had the night break and the I-beam and you had all these other places that just bled music and bled art. And I felt that as a person who wished they could have been a part of the Summer of Love, at least I got that little bit of a taste. As it kind of evolved, the older hippies died away and these young kind of gutter punk people started taking over the streets and more big time businesses moved in there. I still love walking down Hate Street. You know, I still love going to some of the build, some of the old establishments and stuff like that, even though it's changed. There is a vibe and an energy there that you just cannot get away from. I know, you know? right? It's, it's just, still you know, there. And if, yeah. I, and if I can just say Club Deluxe, like when everything opens up again, the fact that Club Deluxe has pretty much free jazz every night of the week there, and that, that vibe in there is... It's timeless, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. And then the other thing is that bar. I hope that's still there. You know, Ab Zamzam was there for years and years when I was growing up. It was one of the only bars that wouldn't let me drink there, even with my brother's ID. The guy was famous for just kicking people out. I'd walk in. He's like, I remember him. I remember him. And so, um, <laughs> he so wasn't the, very nice. And it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful place to drink. So, for me, Anytime I can have a drink at Ab Zom Zom is a celebration of what life could be, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking to celebrate that again as well. And then there's lower hate, which is knock, knock. And for me, what's going to be very interesting when the whole world wakes up again and is able to go outside and, and be what's still here and what's not. I think that we're not going to be able to kind of get a reckoning of what's happened until we, until, until we're opens, able to yeah. really like have, okay, this is my day. I'm going to go and I'm going to try to drink at every open bar on hate street and see what's still there. Or I mean, yeah. I'm passing by my two favorite blocks and like, Oh my God, what's still there. I, you, I just don't know. No, you heard about one place closing the other place closing. It's been 17 months of uncertainty and I just don't know. And, yeah. I, and I forget. So we'll see. Yeah, I agree. Cause I have an office downtown and, uh, it's dismal there. Yeah. I like going to work every day because I have something to do, but it's dismal. Dismal. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. So I was just walking around the park and thinking about asking you a question because I also have a huge passion for music, which was part of the reason why I moved to San Francisco. And right now, I'm having a hard time figuring out the best way to support musicians. And whether that's, I try to go to local record stores, and I try to pay for Spotify and Pandora and buy music on iTunes. But what do you feel is the best way to support musicians? I think it's a great question. I think there's three or four really great ways of supporting musicians. First of all, Bandcamp is incredible. And Bandcamp has this thing. Bandcamp is an online, it's like MySpace or Facebook for, for musicians. And it really works. And you can buy stuff directly from the musicians there. And they have Bandcamp Fridays once a month where Bandcamp waives all their fees. 
So it all goes to musicians. There is also, and I'm going to forget the name, but an organization that sprung up out of all this that's designed to help save music venues. And I think that we can't talk about musicians without talking about the venues that they're going to play in. And for so long, San Francisco didn't have a lot of music venues. That started getting better and better. And then, you know, COVID really racked the whole thing. So I would say support the organizations that are supporting music venues. And a lot of them are playing online. Tim Bloom from the Mother Hips, great San Francisco band. He's playing all the time online and there's a little tip jar. And Facebook has done a wonderful job doing these Facebook live events where bands can play, you know, Chris Von Schneider, another old San Francisco standard. He's playing there and it's a great place. You can directly tip. John Cordy, who was in vinyl and he's been in a ton of other bands. He's playing live and online and live music's coming back. And I think that you got to find where the live music is happening and go and, and be there and support. Yeah. You know, I I saw that that you went to John Cordy's concert in at Perry's at Fairfax. It felt so weird being outside listening to music. Outside, Yeah. Yeah. And the place next door is selling margaritas. It was just perfect. He's such a great guy. He's a great guy. I know him because of you guys. Yeah. And his band that he was playing with is a very Doug Som oriented kind of Americana throwback. And they're just amazing. It was a great way to spend the afternoon. So there are great ways of support. I do not think that Pandora support and Spotify support is really ultimately the good goal for these. You want to find you want to figure out a way of, of mainlining your gift right to the musicians. There's a lot of possibility ways of doing that. We should all go to a show together. That would be fun. Yeah, the other way to support musicians and I want to do more of this is get 10 friends together. They all put in 50 to 100 dollars. Call your favorite local band. Tell them that they can show up to your house and play a 45 minute acoustic set for 500 dollars. Oh my god! So you know that that is yes. something you can do. That's a great idea. Can we just do that? We'll podcast pocket. it. Yeah, you could. We can. Yeah, everybody yes. throws in 50 bucks, or you even get less people. Five people put in 100 bucks, but 50 bucks is usually good for a family. So throw 50 bucks for a family. Go get Andy K back and Vetiver. Have them play a set for you. Oh, you know, or that's whatever. a great idea. We should do that and do a live podcast. We yeah. should. Yeah. We'll be talking. I'll be there. Okay. I I, I give my backyard for that, too. If you want to do a live podcast out of the backyard, we can get 10 10 different groups of people there. That's a great idea. I'd be happy to. It'd be great. Uh, Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Super. All right. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Meeting David Katznelson was perfect. To walk up to this tall man who was like a teddy bear and just embraced you, even though I've never met him, was amazing. And I learned that he was a Lowell graduate, which I was as well. And in doing these interviews, the best thing that I love about these interviews is learning about how people come to be where they are today and their pathways to their journey in life and for him to follow his passion with music and then being able to meet all these artists was remarkable. I just loved meeting this guy. Michaela, how was it for you? I have so many feelings. He's probably going to be creeped out by how much I adore this man, but his path of life was something that I wanted to be as a young person. And so just being in the music scene, getting into clubs underaged, meeting people and just being an incredible appreciator of 
of music and the history of music from way back when and how it's evolved. And then everybody who came to San Francisco and hearing about his experience and putting it with my own experience was just dynamite. I just really enjoyed that aspect. And I think the most poignant part for me was hearing about, very much like when we talked to Jay Shu about how art is contemporary, David started talking about how music tells the story of the times and thinking about it from that same perspective of art is super contemporary, music is super contemporary. It just, it really brought it all in for me on, on my passions and how we, I think the three of us, we just love the arts and the history. And, and that's what makes San Francisco so great is everybody here has that same appreciation for all of these artistic avenues that we all, we all go down, right? Absolutely. And with local music here, you know, a lot of artists, big artists came from San Francisco and he started playing in these little neighborhood spots. And it's important to continue to cultivate that creativity because this is a city where people get to be fully expressed, explore different genres, meld different flavors together to create something new. So when we have the opportunity to open up, and see more and more of these artists play, I encourage everyone to go support these local venues. Absolutely. And I hope we do this backyard music time that that David invited us to of having somebody come and, and maybe we'll do a live podcast for for this show that we're good, this private show. That would be exciting. <laughs> that would be super exciting. What I love about David Ketz Nelson is that not only does he tell the history of everything around you and he and he tells it with so much passion but he also gives you steps to a solution that you can take when things are not looking so up and i I, he's always done that for as long as i've known him and i just love that he always leaves things on a positive note not to have a pun but he does he leaves (laughs) everything on a positive note the eternal optimist exactly Yeah, I love that. He was marvelous. Yeah. Loved him. Yeah. Michaela, tell us about how people can follow us. So if you'd like to see this marvelous human, David Katz Nelson, make sure to follow us at Beyond the Fog Radio on Instagram and on Facebook. You can see all the behind the scenes of where we are, what we're doing. And we also want to talk about our team here who is helping us create this podcast. It's the three of us, but we also have Tim, who's created our awesome web design. We have Connor, who makes us sound excellent with all of his great sound mixing. My husband does the theme music. And we also want to give a very warm and generous thank you to Bisha Rose, who has been our copy editor. And she is growing and doing other things now, but we really, really appreciate everything that she's done for us. (laughs) So thank you, Bisha. And Susan, tell everybody why it's so important to subscribe to our little podcast here. It's very important to subscribe because that is how we can continue to bring you amazing interviews like this one and the wonderful, wonderful interview we have coming up next week with Nina, Klima, and the gang. So subscribe. Beyond the Fog Radio is available on Google, Spotify, and Apple or wherever you get your podcast. That's it for this week. 
Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Take care and we'll see you next week. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Rights Reserved, Beyond the Fog Radio, 2021.